Welcome to the season of Lent. If you didn't know it was Lent 1, you probably began to get an idea that it was based upon the the tone of the scriptures. Uh, We enter into this season and it is our opportunity to self-examine, to to seek the Lord, to say, Father, where would you have us um, direct our attention? What sin would you have us repent of? Um, I am um, just so thankful for the Ash Wednesday uh, litany of the penitents that we receive. Uh, if you would, grab that prayer book in front of you and just flip open to page 548. Uh, I'm going to share with you my deepest, darkest sin. 548 and 549. I'm going to share your deepest, darkest sin as well. If There were about 83 of us here for Ash Wednesday, but some of us weren't able to come. And so I just think it's important. I would just encourage you to leave that prayer book open throughout the remainder of the sermon. But let me just really quickly go through these because it puts in mind the, the, the various sins. Perhaps we, 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 we get small in terms of what our sins are, just speeding and, you know, taking a second dessert or something. So here's, here's what the litany says. For all our unfaithfulness and disobedience, pride, vanity, and hypocrisy in our lives, for self-pity and impatience, and for our envy of those who we think are more fortunate than ourselves, for our unrighteous anger, bitterness, and resentment, for all lies, gossip, and slander against our neighbors, for sexual, sexual impurity and our exploitation of others, and our failure to give of ourselves in love, for our indulgent appetites and ways, and our intemperate pursuit of worldly goods and comforts, our dishonesty in daily life and work, and our ingratitude for your gifts, and our failure to heed your call, for our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for our wastefulness and misuse of your creation and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Justin Smith's going to talk to us about that one on Wednesday night. For our false judgments, our prejudice and contempt for others, and our uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors, our negligence in prayer and worship, our presumption and abuse in your means of grace, for seeking the praise of others rather than the approval of God, and for our failure to commend the faith that is in us. That's the litany of the penitent. And I encourage you, it's a, it's a great discipline just to go through that throughout Lent and allow the Lord to speak into your life and say, where, is, where among this great litany is the Lord want to work in our lives to set us free from a, a habit of sin that maybe has, uh, has been a problem for us for years? Now, when I come to the, to the text for today's sermon, the, the sermon, uh, the Matthew 4 passage, the gospel passage, I'm, I'm oftentimes, my first blush is to think, well, this is Jesus modeling for us how we're to overcome temptation in our own lives. And maybe you've heard teachings or sermons about that, and, and I think it has a place, but primarily I want you to be aware that, that, that this is not mostly about how to fight off temptation in your own life. First of all, notice that this 
called for Jesus to go into the desert, he's led there by the Holy Spirit. Now, not to say that there's not ever a time, a a dark night of the soul, or a period where the Lord is really testing you to see if you'll be faithful in the midst of suffering, but but those times are fairly few and far between in my life, and perhaps probably in your life, I imagine. Here, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. Yes, he's to be tempted by the devil, but he is also being tested by the Lord, and I'll explain why I believe that in just a second. He's being led into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil. The other thing to point out that's unique about this for Jesus is that he's there 40 days and 40 nights, and then he's hungry, and then he's tempted by the devil. I don't know about you, but if I miss one meal, I'm already ready, primed to be tempted by the devil. I am what you call hangry pretty quickly. And if you miss, if I miss three meals or take a whole day of fasting, boy, I am, I am primed to be grumpy and you do not want to be around me. Just ask Jody. Jesus has been baptized in the River Jordan by John in the previous chapter. The last account in Matthew is that Jesus has been baptized. He comes up out of the water. The sky is broken open. The spirit descends on him like a dove. And he hears those incredible words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, yes, this is God the Father affirming Jesus the Son. But more importantly, this is God saying, you have a mission in this world. I have I have." ordained you. I have set you apart. I have consecrated you for this mission, and you are to be my son. You are to fulfill all the scriptures of the Old Testament about the Messiah, the son of God who was to come. It is at that moment that Jesus is led into the desert. It's at that moment that he enters into this 40 days. Now, last week we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus goes up to the mountain and is transfigured. And remember, Moses and Elijah were there. Well, here again, just in other places in the Gospel of Matthew, there are these parallels with with Moses and with Elijah. Forty days was a significant number for both those guys. Moses was on the mount with God for 40 days. Uh, Elijah has 40 days as well in his life. There is this, 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 all these connections to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. But most succinctly, I want you to see that Jesus, the background of this temptation scene for Jesus is Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is about to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And he inspires his prophet Moses to write these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. The whole commandment that I command you shall be careful you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 years. He, that he might humble you, testing you to know what you, was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Moses tells the children of Israel that God has been testing you in the wilderness to see how you would respond. He has been trying you. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that, that the people of Israel failed miserably, right? They built the golden calf. They, they, they grumbled and complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They, they just, you know, the, the quail weren't good enough. The manna wasn't good enough. They, they did all sorts of ways that showed themselves unfaithful. But now God has sent his son and sent him into the wilderness that he might be faithful where Israel was unfaithful. Do you know that all three of the scriptures that Jesus speaks back to Satan in this passage, they're all from Deuteronomy. This one from Deuteronomy 8 and two others from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus understands that this this time in the wilderness is for him that time of being tested and tried by God. Yes, tempted by the devil, but also tested and tried by God that he would be found faithful. That even though Israel was unfaithful, this son of God would be faithful and he would withstand the temptations. All that the enemy could throw at him. I think you could probably make some, some, some time and energy in going back to the way that, that God speaks to, um, to Eve and Adam in the garden and how they succumb. You know, they see that the, the fruit is good. Uh, they, they, you know, there's, it's, it's desirable. You know, there's something about it that, is, that, is, that, is, that, that stirs up in this, this desirability. And then they, they want to be like God. They want to know this knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and here are the three temptations of Jesus. They're tempted to, to make stones become bread. Taken to the temple, which is probably, the apex of the temple was probably about twice as high as our roof line. Jesus is on the temple uh, pinnacle and, he, and, and he's tempted to, be, to cast himself down and demonstrate Psalm 91, that God will not allow his, his foot to, be, to even hit the, hit the ground, that he'll be saved and spared to, to have that, that visual sign, to be affirmed as the, as the Messiah, the king of the world. And, and, and then thirdly, to go to the, the mountains and to, and to have command and power over all the, all the worlds, all the, the nations and the kingdoms. Can, it, can you imagine being able to see all the power Jesus has given all that, and that's sort of like, you know, have, being like God, you know, having power and control. And there's, so there's some similarities there I think you can probably make. But, but Jesus here is, he is becoming the one who is able to withstand the temptations to sin, to overcome them, to be faithful, even while we are not faithful. So why is that? Well, Hebrews chapter 2 is pretty helpful, I think, for understanding why it is that that Jesus needed to be tempted. Hebrews writer says, therefore, he, he had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a fancy, that's a, that's a $10 word there. Propitiation means, it means atonement. And he made atonement for our sins. Of course, thinking about the cross and how Christ suffered for us. But first he had to experience temptation and yet not give in. That he might make 
atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. So I would suggest to you that primarily we're not to go to the temptation scene and say, okay, well, I should quote scripture to the devil and, uh, you know, whatever else you can kind of draw out. But primarily we should see that it is that Jesus is our hero. Jesus is the one who's able to succumb, uh, to stand up to the temptations that the devil throws at him. And because he has been tempted and yet did not sin, he is therefore the perfect person to, uh, for us to run to in our temptation. Not just when we're trying to not sin, but when we've already sinned. He knows our weaknesses. And he has made a provision. God has a sense of humor. Back in seminary, Romans 5, 12 through 21 was my uh, biblical interpretation project. I almost gave up seminary over those very words that Sean read for us. I could not get my mind around it. It was too complex, and I I couldn't see the forest for the trees is a good way of putting it. Um, I was making it way too complex. What, What... what God did in his, in his, marvelous, his marvelous way is that he allowed sin to enter through one person, Adam, who is, if you will, the federal headship. So that by allowing sin to enter through one person, then when he sends, sends the second Adam, Jesus, he becomes the, the perfect righteous one who's able to bring grace and mercy so because we used to line up under Adam and, we were, and we, were, we were all tainted by sin because of Adam, so now in Christ we can all be set free and experience grace and mercy. Why couldn't I have figured that out in 2000? I don't know, but here we are. God is so good that he has sent Christ to be the atoning sacrifice. We no longer have to live out the first Adam's sinful rebellion sense of control, desire to, to meet our own needs in our own ways, desiring to be like God without submitting to God. But now we can be in Christ, who is our atonement. Oh, God is good. Well, how are we to apply the temptation scene and, and this, all these scriptures into our lives? Well, first of all, we are to remember that that the nature of sin. And, and we could spend a long time, but just to, just to briefly remind you from Genesis 2 and 3, um, sin causes death. Sin is that rebellion against God, that, that taking control of our lives, and, and, and it brings destruction in our lives. And, you know, God says, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you will die. Which would have made me not want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you notice that they eat? You know, it's like, why do, we, why do we do things that we know will kill us? But they didn't die immediately. They died spiritually, but they didn't die physically immediately. But sin entered in. And a brokenness takes place in, in all of creation as a result of, of Adam and Eve's sin against God. First of all, there's, like, there's the break between God and man. The relationship between God and humanity is broken. And, and so there, that relationship is severed. We know that. It's pretty clear. But there's also a break between the relationship between the man and the woman. What, is the, what does the man do as soon as God confronts him with his sin, his rebellion? He blames the woman. 
And then the woman blames the serpent. And there's this break in their relationship. They're hiding and they're covering themselves from God and from one another. There's a break in the relationship between humanity and creation. Now, work is no longer pleasurable, but it is sweat of our brow. It's toil and it's difficult. And I'm preaching to the crowd. You know how hard work is. And, and that's another result of the fall. And the woman is to give birth and child pain and, pain and travail. And, there's, and, there's, and all these things that were supposed to be uh, a blessing are now tainted with sin and brokenness. Theologians have also made the point that the result of sin is that man and woman become broken within themselves. We weren't supposed to suffer things like shame and anger and loneliness and hopelessness. But these too become a result of the fall. All of these things are, if you will, what's behind that litany of penitence that we read. It's oftentimes those things that are driving the outward signs, the ways we manipulate and control and try to please, please ourselves and deal with the pain of our own lives, our shame, our guilt, our, our hiding, our anger, all the things that we see expressed in Adam and Eve. Well, then you get to Psalm 51, and David is, is, is so helpful. He's crying out to the Lord, and, and, and the result should be that we cry out to God for mercy and grace. Sometimes I think we don't, maybe because we're not even in, in touch with how deeply sin has affected our lives. We think we just need to, you know, be more organized or... Um, get rid of that one person in our lives that's the problem or, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like the, you know, the man who's married, been married four times and he, he keeps talking about how bad his wives are. You know, after, at some point you go, you know, maybe it's not the wives that's the problem. You know, maybe it's you. You know, you, you keep, you know, I, I've said that to churches, you know, you keep, you keep bringing in new rectors and they're never good enough. Well, maybe it's the church that's broken, not the, not the rector. You know, if you keep, keep marrying the wrong person, you got to at some point look in, inside and look out. Listen to David. Turn over there, if you will, 333 in the prayer book. Have mercy upon me, David cries out. Wash me thoroughly from my wickedness. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my faults. My sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes that ultimately all of our sins are against God. You know, it's, it's like, you know, Paul talks about that, you know, that, that when, we, when we covet something, we, we want what God has not given us. And so we take it. If we can't take it, we despise the person who has it. And it's a lack of trust in the Lord. It's a lack of trust in his, his divine caring for us and provision for us. It's, it's the temptation to, to, take those, to take the stones and somehow make them into bread, you know, crush them down and mix them with a little bit of leaven and a lot of milk and eggs and make them into something that's malleable for us to eat and try to eat those stone bread. It doesn't work, but we try and try and try. David 
cries out to the Lord that he will be set free from his brokenness. I love line in verse six, but behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You make me to understand wisdom secretly. I love that because I think it's, the, I think it's David recognizing that God understands the very depths of our pain and why we outwardly sin in all these many ways because of this emptiness and brokenness and hiddenness and pain and anger and despair, all those things that are deep within our hearts. The Lord wants to heal those things. And look at what look at what David goes on to say there. He changes in verse seven, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You shall wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You shall make me hear the joy and gladness. The bones that you have broken may rejoice. Turn your face from my sin. Blot out all my misdeeds. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God has faith that, that Jesus, David has faith that God can do something about the sin condition of his life. Even though he doesn't know the person of Jesus, doesn't yet know the way of atonement, David trusts in God and he cries out that he would be purged, that he'd be cleansed, that he'd be given a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. It's, if you've ever been my acolyte uh, or my acolyms, you know that when I pray, when, I'm, when that little uh, lavava bowl is brought to me and I'm washing my hands, that's my prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. The Lord wants to set us free from this. The reality is that even though we are in Christ, that we have known Jesus to be, as Paul says, our federal headship, the one who, through whom grace and mercy have come to us, Sin still has its way in us. This is not past tense for the Christian. This is active every day, which is why we go through Lent. This is why we have confession in church. Question number four in our catechism says, what is the way of death? The way of death is a life empty of God's love and life-giving Holy Spirit, controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy, but that lead only into darkness and misery and eternal condemnation. Can I say to you that there are Christians who don't take seriously enough the sin in their own lives? And because of it, they, though they know the saving grace of Christ, they allow things to be, control their lives that lead to darkness, misery, and could ultimately lead to eternal condemnation. And I say that with all seriousness, and I understand the theological weight of what I'm saying. I think there are some who will enter into heaven, but but they'll be like Paul says, like all of their, all the, the works of their life will just be burned up like wood and straw and hay. And they'll, they'll barely get in by the chin of their hair, their chinny chin chin to quote the nursery rhyme, you know. And, and their life on earth 
is entrapped by the darkness and misery and eternal condemnation of this world. But it ought not be because Christ entered the wilderness and he faced down the devil and all of his temptations. And Hebrews 4, 16 and 17 says, and was in always tempted, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, the Hebrew writer says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Yes, the sin burden is huge. But Christ says, put it on me. Bring it to me. Put on me your anger and your hopelessness and your striving and your pain. I can take it. In a little bit, I'll read the exhortation which is required in our Anglican rule of life to to be shared at the first Sunday of Lent and the first Sunday of Advent every year. And it's that basically that passage that draws from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, don't come and receive Holy Communion unworthily. Let me just say, to be really clear, and I said this to the Wednesday night class, we're all unworthy to come and receive Holy Communion. There is not a one of us that is worthy. In our liturgy, in the prayer book, in the back it actually says, you know, the prayer of humble access. We're unworthy to receive this year, you know, come to this year holy table. We can actually insert the words, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are unworthy. But here's what's going on in Corinth. And this is the reason why Paul writes it. And this is, I mean, so we're all unworthy. But here's what's happening in Corinth. The Corinthians, the rich Corinthians are actually sinning against the poor Corinthians even as they're participating in the communion service. They're feasting on these great meals and, and provoking their, 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 their poor brothers and sisters to jealousy in their midst. It would be like you walking up to communion, meanwhile you're judging the person across the aisle from you for what they're wearing or how they're looking or what they've done, even as you walk. Or it'd be like you walking forward and you're planning your retaliation against your neighbor who cut that tree that was on your side of the fence and what lawyer you're going to contact or what city official you're going to call and how you're going it's, to... It's, it's the idea that we would come presumptively sinning even as we're taking part in this Holy Communion, commemorating the one who gave his life for us. Remember that parable that Jesus tells, you know, about the guy that owes like a million dollar debt and his master forgives the million dollar debt. And then he goes out of court and he sees his buddy who owes him $20 and he starts like wrangling him and saying, man, if you don't pay me that 20 bucks, I'm gonna throw you, I'm gonna have you thrown in jail for petty, you know, for petty crime or whatever and 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 Jesus is saying how how is it that we can that we can be forgiven all the sins and I know your favorite sin was right there in that litany of the pittances mine was too and yet hold that grudge even as we walk to communion that's that's what the exhortation is getting 
The point being that Christ wants us to, to bring those things to him, to offer those things to him. He wants to be for us the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. We're all tempted to try to not literally turn stones into bread, but to find ways to try to meet our own needs. We're all tempted to want to look good in front of other people. We're all tempted to test God, test his mercy through our actions. We're all tempted to seek to grab power and to want what the world has to offer. I got to go skiing a couple of weeks ago with Charlie, my older daughter, and uh, we were flying in a private plane, a plane like Bob Doak used to fly. We were at the airport near um, Vail, Colorado, and uh, this plane landed and Larry, the owner of our plane, said, that's a $50 million Gulfstream. And I said, I have made a really bad career choice. I mean, that, part of me, that, that's what I thought. I mean, it, it was like three people on this Gulfstream. $50 million airplane. You don't want to feel poor. Just don't, you know, don't go to Vail, Colorado. And it's like, to... now that's an extreme example, but but we're all tempted. We're all tempted to try to take control and power and do whatever we can to put ourselves in a place of influence and to experience all that life lays before us. But Christ says, you won't find satisfaction for the pain of your life there. You won't solve the emptiness or the anger or the pain only on me can you lay it, Jesus says. Come unto me, all who labor and are under heavy travail, and I will give you rest. Christ willingly entered into the wilderness and willingly went to the cross that he might know our temptation and that he might be the source of grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Put it on Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.